You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Equifax discloses a massive data breach it discovered on July 29th. Does that mean they're about a month delinquent? WikiLeaks's weekly Vault 7 dump departs from past practice with respect to content. The Shadow Brokers are back and offering a twice-monthly twofer. And intelligence community leaders agree on at least three things. They need a better security clearance process, they need Section 702, and nowadays all intelligence involves cyber intelligence. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, September 8th, 2017. The big story in cybersecurity is yesterday's disclosure by Equifax, one of the big three U.S. credit bureaus, that it had sustained a data breach. And this breach is a big one. It affects 143 million individuals, mostly Americans, although data belonging to smaller numbers of citizens of some other countries, notably Canada and the United Kingdom, were also hit. It's known that the data was lost. Equifax disclosed that it had detected unauthorized access. So this isn't simply a case of, say, potential exposure of data inadvertently left out there on the web. Someone came in and took it. Among the information lost are names, social security account numbers, dates of birth, and addresses. Large subsets of the affected individuals also lost credit card numbers, dispute documents, and driver's license numbers. You'd say that seems like about everything, but Equifax would differ. The company says in its statement that its core credit record databases were uncompromised. Those are records of things like late payments, bad debts, and so on. Most observers have found that cold comfort at best. The data lost are more than sufficient to commit all manner of fraud and identity theft. How the breach occurred remains publicly unknown, and Equifax has been closed-mouthed about the details. But there's considerable speculation online that the hackers exploited a patchable but unpatched flaw in Equifax's website. The company says it noticed the breach on July 29th and that it's called in a security company to help with remediation. They're also offering their identity protection and credit monitoring services free to affected individuals. Why affected individuals would sign up for such monitoring is unclear. Many journalists and security experts have looked into the proffered service and found it dodgy, hard to use, generally insecure, and probably an opportunity to be hit up for a paid renewal when the free offer expires. The company's response has struck most as tone-deaf. In most large-scale cyber incidents, there are varying degrees of sympathy for the victim and an acknowledgement of the victim's difficulties. Equifax is, as far as we can tell, getting none of this. The Twitter storm over the incident is massive and utterly unsympathetic. A great deal of this is schadenfreude from those who have found themselves at some point in their lives caught up in the iron web of credit evaluation. 
A lot of it comes from security people who are aghast at the apparent degree of carelessness with personal data. And no one appears to think that a 49-day delay between discovery and disclosure is acceptable. It may be difficult for the credit rating industry as a whole to continue in its present form. Equifax stock is down about 13% today, but there are a few things to point out. First, it's not necessarily the company's customers who are being hurt. It's the consumers those customers are paying Equifax to rate. Second, three senior Equifax executives sold significant blocks of their shares in the company between July 29th and yesterday. The company has said none of the three, they included the CFO, knew about the breach when they sold and that, anyway, they didn't sell all the shares they owned. There will be as many, if not more, lessons to be learned from this episode as a case study and incident response as there will from the forensic post-mortem itself. Further exploitation may already be in progress. We've seen creditable but unconfirmed reports that an extortion threat has been made online to Equifax. The annual Intelligence and National Security Summit, sponsored jointly by INSA and AFCEA, concluded yesterday in Washington, D.C. You'll find our continuing coverage of the summit on our website, thecyberwire.com. But here we'll mention three themes that came across very clearly to us at the conference. First, the U.S. intelligence community and its stakeholders find themselves in general agreement that a new approach to talent management is necessary. That what Marine Corps Major General Groen of the Joint Staff's J-2 called an industrial age approach to the workforce is no longer adequate to current realities. And it's likely to grow even less adequate over time. People with essential expertise, both linguists and cybersecurity professionals were repeatedly singled out for mention, need to have career paths designed that will challenge, develop, and retain them. And there was a close to complete and universal agreement, as we've ever seen, that one aspect of the legacy approach to talent management, the security clearance process, is irretrievably broken. How it could be fixed remains unclear, but fixed it must be, senior intelligence community leaders agreed. They advocated in a general way two lines of reform that might be pursued, moving away from the current practice of regular re-examinations in favor of some form of continuous evaluation, and moving toward a serious risk management approach to personnel security. Second, the U.S. intelligence executives who spoke were unanimous in their support of Section 702 reauthorization. This section of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act authorizes the intelligence community to target the communications of non-U.S. persons located outside the United States for foreign intelligence purposes. They thought that without Section 702 authority, their ability to accomplish their mission would, given current global communication realities, essentially vanish. All were at pains to stress the multiple layers of oversight designed to shield U.S. citizens' privacy from 702 surveillance. Representative Schiff and Senator Warner, ranking members respectively of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, both said in their remarks that they thought congressional reauthorization of Section 702 was likely. And the third point was obvious on reflection, although it could easily have been lost by the routine way in which it was treated. All intelligence is now effectively cyber-intelligence. None of the traditional intelligence disciplines, not even imminent, imagery intelligence, mostly photos taken from aircraft or satellites, or human, human intelligence, the traditional spy craft of recruiting and running agents, among other practices, are conducted entirely outside of cyberspace any longer. 
As usual, WikiLeaks offered another dump from Vault 7 yesterday. It involved no cyber tools, but rather a missile control system. Two things are worth remarking on the dump. First, the classification level of the leaks appears to be dropping. No juicy, highly compartmented stuff here. And second, WikiLeaks had adopted a kind of Tribune of the People stance with its earlier dumps. See how we take your side against the overweening surveillance of the deep state, and so on. But that fig leaf seems to have dropped, at least this time. A combat system is tough to cover with a fig leaf of civil libertarian concern. And the shadow brokers are back, too. Have you missed them as much as we have? This time, it's with an announcement. They now plan to move from one exploit dump per month to two of them. The twofer offer gamely maintains the broker's pose of selling stuff to make some coin at the Equation Group's expense. They're in it for the money, don't you see? As they say, if you be paying, the shadow brokers be playing. Don't be playing, kids. Or paying, either. Just say no. everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor splunk you know you need to keep operations humming around the clock but potential disruptions are everywhere splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime the world's largest enterprises rely on splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient resilient and innovative with Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Emily, we've seen some stories lately uh, coming out of the UK where after some terrorist attacks, some of the politicians there have been saying perhaps we need to dial back encryption. And this has led to people saying, no, that'll just drive people underground onto the dark web. Yeah, I think there are two interesting points on that. One of them is that it comes around time and again. Every time something pops up, 
you know, a, a terrorist attack, for example, where technology of some kind was involved, which is basically anything at this point. People were communicating about their plans. It's really easy for people to say, oh, well, we should end encryption in the same way people pop up and say, oh, you know, we should have back doors, but only for law enforcement. It is overly simplistic in a way that I, I struggle to articulate clearly because I get so frustrated. It is, <laughs> it is entirely unreasonable to say that we need to end encryption because that would solve our problems. Sure. Okay. Great. I think some people are making the case to not end it, but maybe just weaken it. Is there a difference? Is that a, is that a distinction without a difference? I think it's a distinction without a difference. I think you say we'll weaken it. I think you say we will only use it for these purposes. You say everything is going to be above board and that's fine. And I think that is an unrealistic situation. And I think, I think anyone who believes that could work probably hasn't thought it through all the way. If you make it easier for some people to be able to access encrypted messaging then you are just giving everyone else a good foothold to push through further. Do you think there's anything to this notion that people it'll drive people to the dark web? I wouldn't be surprised. I think people are always going to be looking for a way to communicate uh, or interact securely or privately. And I think you know there's a whole separate discussion about the difference between security and privacy. But the more time that passes, the more people have an expectation of being able to conduct their business without being interfered with, perfectly legitimate business, whether this is messaging or browsing or what have you. And I think people are going to start looking for what previously were thought to be more extreme measures. And I don't think the dark web has to be an extreme thing. You know, if you use Tor browser, it doesn't make you a, it doesn't make you a criminal. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It just means you want to be able to browse anonymously. I think people are going to increasingly find that appealing. Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. My guest today is Alexander Klimberg. He's the author of the book, The Darkening Web, The War for Cyberspace. Mr. Klimberg is a program director at the Hague Center for Strategic Studies, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and an associate and former fellow at the Belfer Center of the Harvard Kennedy School. In our conversation, I asked him about the notion of a cyber Pearl Harbor, or a cyber 9-11. Those terms have become totem poles for those who subscribe all catastrophe scenarios, catastrophe scenarios, to only those who have a vested interest in gaining something from them financially. In other words, everyone who talks about cyber 9-11, cyber Pearl Harbor is selling a cyber product. Hmm. 
that unfortunately, of course, a lot of that is true. A lot of people have been getting a lot of money from selling products and have been gaining a lot from what we call in the industry, you know, we call it in InfoSec world, fear, uncertainty, doubt. At the same time, it doesn't mean that their scare stories aren't true as well. And this has been the problem for me, I think, that us as a, that we as a community, so the hack community, InfoSec community, which I am part of, I think does not address sufficiently is a certain amount of honesty when we talk about what really can go wrong. In the closed working closed groups that I'm part of, we all know that it's completely possible. But a lot of the people who are part of these working groups won't say so publicly because they don't want to be accused of fear mongering. And I find that's really a problem. The problem is is that a lot of people who work in infosec and especially who are engineers don't feel that it's their job to communicate certain fundamental truths to wider public, such as there is no such thing as complete security, right? Everybody who works in InfoSec knows that. And sometimes they find that it's not their job to communicate such a simple truth. And therefore, since they can't communicate that truth, they're not going to communicate the wider truth with, well, yes, of course it's possible to take down the entire United States and plunge us either back into the 1920s or the Iron Age, depending on exactly how gloomy your scenario is. It's absolutely possible. But they, at the same time, also fear that anybody who comes up, sometimes they is a wide approximation, but it's been, a, it's been a common point of departure that many InfoSec professionals would prefer not to talk about these fear scenarios because they thought that it always would only advance the interests of those who have a security product to sell or an organization to build or something similar. So that's the first part. The first part is, is that, yes, I do think a lot of these things are a lot more possible than have been uh, described by by other technologists in public. Um, I think it is absolutely possible for advanced cyber power to inflict debilitating damage on the United States. Absolutely. And I also think that it's much more likely to occur than nuclear war. But it still means it's very unlikely to occur, right? So one has to keep these things in context. When I talk about a full-out cyber get-on, you know, uh, all-out cyber war, I think it's quite unlikely but this repercussions would still be dramatic and i think it's important technically that we are aware of what the repercussions could be the second point when you raise the capability issue uh, i think sometimes people get this wrong as well is that there's a nice idea out that we've been floating since the 1990s that that the individual can take down a state it's not really true it wasn't it was more true beforehand and now it's really hardly true anymore Simply because uh, we use one way to, to see it is an individual can perhaps disrupt the power supply in a localized area, and maybe a couple of individuals or a terrorist network might even manage to shut down the power grid, uh, let's say, in one of the three U.S. power distribution grid territories, right? But only for a little bit, and it wouldn't be for probably only for a little bit and probably only in a reversible way, so it wouldn't be permanent damage. But what a fully funded tier six capability actor, Russia, China, the UK, Israel, what those actors could do is a whole different level of damage. And that I think a non-state actor group would have would have to be very focused to accomplish that level of intelligence and skills and penetration to be able to cause that level of damage. So when we talk about the fact that, yes, a lot of different countries and actors can play in this, this space, it's important to say that uh, many people can play in this space yes um some of these can also be non-state actors and some of these can be in even individuals but where we, we used to be 20 years ago 30 years ago and thinking that one person can really shut down a country i don't think that's the case if it ever was 
Um, I also think that we can basically say that the top-rated cyber powers are mostly states. So uh, I think it's fundamentally just important to keep in mind is that there are top-level security cyber actors out there, and they will use less empowered actors, cybercrime in particular, to accomplish their mission. But there's a big difference between like what the U.S. can do, what Russia can do, what China can do. And by the way, it's in that order. You make the point in the book that those of us who are in the cybersecurity business need to do a better job making our case to the general public. Number one is, is that we need to work on our messaging better. We need to effectively explain how big the threat is. And the threat is not only of the lights going out, that there will be a massive cyber war of some sort that will destroy critical infrastructure, although that thing is possible and we need to make sure that people understand that it's possible so that we can avoid it by accident occurring between states. It's also important that we understand that there's a scenario where the lights never go out, that we enter this panopticon type situation of total controlled information domain, that the internet that we know today will be fundamentally weakened by the influence of states um, by trying to control the internet, which is consistent, ongoing, has been going on since the 90s and only increasing in scope. And if states, all states, manage to get a controlling interest of how the internet is conceived, then we've surrendered effectively the entire information domain to the control of governments. There is no room for free speech in a world like that. And in that case also, I don't see how democracy could even survive. So for everyone who has a professional interest in cyberspace, they really have to be a bit more aware of the larger picture is of what we work on today and how this information domain really plays an important role in our day-to-day lives, not only in how we earn our livelihoods, but also how our children will actually live. That's Alexander Klimberg. The book is The Darkening Web, The War for Cyberspace. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.